0: Guys, welcome back. We're in uh, Second Peter. Uh, this is our chapter two, and we're going to do today one through nine. And let's open in prayer. Father, we just thank you for bringing us here today. We ask that you would fill us with your Spirit, that you would give us um, wisdom and discernment in applying your Word to our lives. That we learn today, Lord, that you would empty me of me, empty us of us. <laughs> And fill us, Lord, to the fullness that we may be um, just doers of your word and not hearers only, Lord. We ask that you teach us, because if you don't teach us, then nothing will be taught. And what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Okay, we are doing uh, chapter 2, as I said, and we're going to do verses 1 through 9. So, if we were in our classroom, yeah, we were going to sing Praise You, the Lord the Almighty, which is an awesome hymn. So, you'll look up the words and the lyrics to it and, and just dwell on them. Um, we're going to start out by reading chapter 2, 1 through 3. But there are also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories that they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. False doctrines are nothing new. They had already begun to make serious inroads in the churches back in Peter's time, scattered throughout the world. As Paul's letter states, give ed- evidence of this, and also as Jude bears witness to it. Peter had this in mind when he gave his final message to the saints, and he foresaw even greater apostasy in the days to come, and so gave an inspired word of warning in order that believers of every age might not be carried away by the personality and persuasiveness of false teachers masquerading as servants of Christ. The close connection between this chapter and the epistle of Jude has been noted often and is worthy to be read alongside Second Peter 2. When God wants to emphasize something, He always reinforces it by saying it twice. We are to red flag any repetition that's in Scripture, as it is always important. The Holy Spirit himself inspired both of these writers to portray conditions that the Church of God would have to face in the years to come, which would include ours. While they covered the same ground, Peter emphasizes the spread of unscriptural theories, whereas Jude dwells more particularly upon the effects of these. Turning the grace of God into, into lasciviousness. Thus, they give a twofold warning designed to save the elect of God from being misled. We are so easily duped, are we not? Take everything back to the word. Be a Berean. By this double testimony, God emphasizes these things that we need to keep in the forefronts of our minds. When the Edict of Milan was passed in AD 313, the church was then free to move into the world, legally and openly propagating its doctrines. But at the same time, the world also began to move into the church, diluting its message for the next 1,200 years until the Reformation broke forth on the scene. It is obvious from 2 Peter 2 that the world was already in the church well before the time of Constantine. Believers in all ages must be constantly on their guard against its attack. The church is to permeate the world with the truth of the gospel, not the world permeating the church with its false doctrines and its lifestyles. Believers must know the truth and stand firm in it. False teaching is exposed in Second in Peter 2, 1-3. Satan's counterfeits and their insidious activities are always present. They appeared in Israel during the days of the writing prophets spoken of in chapters 1, 19-21. And they were present in the first century church as well. Though Peter switched from writing about false prophets of the past to false teachers in the present, their teaching was the same. Heresy. It's always heresy if it goes against what God says. Interestingly, false prophets often rose out of Israel, amongst their own, from God's own people, not from surrounding people groups. I'm reminded of Jeremiah's words in Jeremiah 5.31. The prophets prophesize lies. The priests rule by their own authority, and my people love it this way. But what will you do in the end? It's a question that is posed to us as well. Again, Jeremiah tells us, concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones tremble. I'm like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord and his holy words. The land is full of adulterers because of the curse. The land lies parched, and the pastures in the desert are withered. The prophets follow an evil course and use their power unjustly. Both prophet and priest are godless. Even in my temple, I find their wickedness, declares the Lord. Therefore, their path will become slippery. They will be banished to darkness, and there they will fall. I will bring disaster on them in the year they are punished, declares the Lord. Among the prophets of Samaria, I saw a repulsive thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people Israel astray. And among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen something horrible. They commit adultery, and they live a lie. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his wickedness. They are like all like Sodom to me. The people of Jerusalem are like Gomorrah. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says concerning the prophets. I will make them eat bitter food and drink poisoned water. Because from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness, because of these prophets, ungodliness has spread throughout the land. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you up with false hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says, you will have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness Of their hearts, they say, No harm will come to you. But which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or hear His word? Who has listened and heard His word? This is what we're called to do too, to search the scriptures and to know them. And we're each responsible for our own actions. Indeed, who has listened and heeded his word. We are all individually held accountable. Similarly, false teachers appear from the midst of the church. They know the truth, but deliberately lie for some purpose. Oftentimes, to simply tickle the hearer's ears for popularity or for money. Teaching and preaching what people want them to say, not what God wants them to say. Or fear of man. That was another big, th- big one to fall. Interestingly, Peter writes in their greed... The teachers will exploit their hearers with fabricated stories. The word translated greed is from the Greek word exia I don't know how to pronounce that. Plexonexia, meaning broad term, including the sins of the flesh. And it is from this root which these sins grow. The longing of those who have forsaken God to satisfy themselves by the means of of the lower objects of nature. What a great definition. Paul tells us in Timothy, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Oh no, they don't want it. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. That's in Second Timothy four, three through four. They secretly introduce their false teachings which are destructive heresies. Secretly introduced means to bring in alongside or infiltrated. They mix truth with the lies, just like Satan. Heresies in classical Greek simply meant schools of philosophy, but New Testament writers use it to describe religious parties or sects, i.e. the Sadducees or the Pharisees, or factions probably based on false doctrines. Such heresies are destructive, For they lead people away from Christ and thus to spiritual ruin. Anyone who leads people away from the pure milk of God's word and from Christ are leading us into spiritual ruin. The charlatans come in and undercover bring in heresies both privately and secretly. It is never customary for teachers of error to declare and oppose the truth openly. In the beginning, like Satan, they are sly in their approach and get others first to question the truth. Did God really say? Did he really say? And he tells us in Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed. So yes, he really said what's in the Word. They gain the confidence of God's people prior to making their real views known. Once they have wormed their way into the confidence of the people, they go to the limit, even denying the Lord who bought them and exposing themselves to the judgment of God. The sad result of their unscriptural ministry is that the weak and uninstructed readily follow the pernicious ways of these misleading representatives of Satan. While they masquerade as angels of light, there are demonic darkness. And because of this, the way of truth is derided and evil spoken of. Their target is the gullible and the vulnerable. Do you know why you believe what you believe? Do you know why you believe what you believe? It's important. Those that may not have heard the word, but do not hold it in their hearts, or have heard the word, but don't hold it in their hearts, they do not apply what they know to be true. Because head knowledge just puffs up and sours. But, but proper knowledge, when it's assimilated, fleshes out. Now, I'll, <clears throat> Again, Paul tells us in Second Timothy, speaking of false teachers, they are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. Because if you do not flesh out what God teaches you, you will quit. You will. It, it means nothing. The focus of their heresies was the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ, whom they denied in Jude 4. This, in turn, led to their own spiritual destruction or ruin, which will be swift, sudden, and soon. The Scripture says, "These false teachers, who were said to be among the people, and whom the Lord had bought." end up in everlasting destruction. They are redeemed in the sense that Christ had paid the redemptive price for their salvation, but they did not apply it to themselves, and so were not saved. The devil believes and trembles, and he's not saved. Christ's death is sufficient for all, but it is efficient only for those who believe This is a strong argument for unlimited atonement, the view that Christ died for everyone, and against limited atonement, the view that Christ died only for those whom he would later serve. Christ tells us, or God tells us in John 3, 16, that he loves all. He came for all. The tragic fact about many false teachers is that they are successful. The tragedy of all of it is that they or sometimes successful. People listen to them and follow them in their shameful, meaning debauchery, filthy, lustful ways. It refers to a debased, sexually immoral practice. Heresy is like leaven. Paul tells us in Galatians, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Like leaven, sadly, false doctrine will corrupt all with which it comes into context. You cannot take a white glove and rub it across dirt and have it wiped any longer, right? We're to be on our guard against false teachers, and we do this by checking all teachers against the Word of God. Be a Berean, as it says in Scripture. Check what you hear against God's Word. That is your standard. That is your goal. Remember, we are held accountable for our own lives. We are to be like the Bereans, like I was just saying, who even check Paul. It tells us in Acts 17.11, Now the Bereans were a more noble character than the Thessalonians. More noble. Scripture tells them they were more noble than the Thessalonians. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Others teach error ignorantly. They are not false teachers per se, as they believe what they are teaching is the truth. While a false teacher knows what he is doing and does it so deliberately, I am reminded of James's words of warning to us regarding teachers. Not many of you should pre- be, presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Always take, if you're a teacher, always take what you're saying to, to, back to the Word to make it sure it lines up with Scripture. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault, James tells us in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. James suggested moderation and restraint in the multiplication of teachers. Obviously, too many of the new Jewish Christians aspire to teach and thereby carry some of the rank and admiration given to the rabbis. It is doubtful that the reference here is to official teachers of the apostolic or prophetic status. These are the unofficial teachers in the synagogue meetings of the church family where much latitude was given for even strangers to speak up. Paul frequently used this courtesy given visitors. James's complaint was simply that too many believers were overly anxious to speak up and show off. Teaching has to be done. It must be done. But those who teach must understand their responsibility, as those who teach will be judged more strictly. You never want to be leading somebody in the wrong direction. A teacher's condemnation is greater because having professed to have a clear knowledge of duty, he is all the more bound to obey. Ministerial charlatans and quacks have often troubled God's flock, right? In their greed, they use others for their own mercenary purposes and turn the church into a dirty marketplace. Exploit means to commercialize. It means to buy, sell, trade, carry on business. Stories they have made up is literally fabricated words. Delusions of their own minds is what God calls the prophets who were doing this. They are artificial. They're not genuine. Plastic that can be molded into any possible shape you can imagine, and their end is condemnation and destruction. They fall into the same doom which God has planned for other violators of truth and righteousness. Their destruction has not been sleeping, God's justice does not sleep, and it is never late. Spurgeon writes, there are narrow limits to our knowledge. Spurgeon writes, there's a great breadth to our conceit. 2 Peter 2, 4 through 9 writes, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. Peter now gives us historic examples of God's judgment using several illustrations to demonstrate both. In one of the longest single sentences in the New Testament, Peter was intent on demonstrating both the Lord's judgment and his deliverance. God will judge false teachers, make no mistake about it, and others who sin against him and his word. Indeed, God will take care of the wicked. We don't have to worry about it. It is God's to avenge. He will repay. History, Peter wrote, gives ample verification of this truth. The first example is that of the fallen angels. This refers either to their fall with Satan in his rebellion against God in Ezekiel, which states in Ezekiel twenty-eight fifteen through 17, you are, speaking of Satan, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence, and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to earth, and I made a spectacle of you before kings. Or to the sin of angels that were mentioned in Genesis, when men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. Then the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and he was grieved, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil at all times. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Genesis 6 1 through 6. As we see from the above scriptures, there were two distinct angelic apostasies. While Satan was a leader of both, they did not occur at the same time. If God in his justice punished angels, surely he would not hesitate to punish people. Those who were created innocent followed the lead of Satan and sinned even in heaven. God spared not the angels, though they were beings of so high an order, and he plunged them into hell, literally, Tartarus, apparently a prison of custody, which is gloomy dungeons, the lowest depth of hell. Between the time of the judgment and their ultimate consignment to the eternal lake of fire, held in chains of darkness, there will be no future trial, for their doom is already sealed. Satan himself is not bound in Tartarus, nor will he be until he is cast into the bottomless pit, which is prior to the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ stated in Revelation 21. Satan is called the prince of the power of the air, and he and his cohorts are still at large and are described as wicked spirits in the heavenlies. False prophets, Peter argued, will taste the same judgment as the rebellious angels. Peter was greatly impressed by the significance of the flood, for he referred to it three times in two epistles, 1 Peter 3.20, Second Peter two five and three six, Noah and seven others is the NIV's rendering of the Greek. Noah, the eighth person, the others were his wife, his three sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. God will always have a remnant, always, always have a remnant. Noah was a righteous man, Genesis six nine, an obedient servant of God, and a shipbuilder, Genesis six. 13 through 22. Peter added that he was also a preacher or herald of righteousness who spoke out against the vile corruption that was all around him. He was an evangelist seeking to save, but no one came. The primary focus of 2 Peter 2 5 is the unsparing hand of God on the civilization prior to the flood, the ancient world with its ungodly people. Do false teachers today think that they can escape God's judgment because of their large numbers? Peter reminded them and those who were the targets of their delusions that God can and will judge evil when it involves the entire human race, even when it involves, involves them, with the exception of only eight people. The word brought suggests the suddenness of God's judgment of the flood. Peter used the same verb, verb in verse 1 in speaking of heretics who are bringing destruction on themselves. I am reminded of Christ's return to this earth and that it will come suddenly and most surely. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3 Now, brothers, about times and dates we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, <laughs> destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. That's First Thessalonians 5, 1-3. This comes as a warning to us all to keep our accounts short with the Lord. Jesus tells us, and the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus was not speaking out of ignorance, nor was he questioning whether all believers would would be gone when he returns. Instead, he asked the question to spur the disciples on to faithfulness in prayer, to encourage them to keep on in their praying. God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire is a classic example of universal destruction of the ungodly in Genesis ten fifteen 15-29. The statement rendered burning them to ashes in the NIV is used only here in the New Testament and means reduced to ashes or cover with ashes. Peter concluded this illustration by saying that God made them an example, a model, a pattern of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Jude also speaks this way in Jude 1, 7. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Peter's purpose here was to cite this historical incident of judgment, not to elaborate on the cause for such severe destruction. Yet in our present day, homosexuality recalls the same shameful conduct as in those two ancient cities, Genesis 19, 4-5, Genesis 13, 13, and Romans 1, 26-27. Peter had spoken of the deliverance of Noah and his family, and now he cited another, God's rescue of Lot. Here again is an interesting New Testament commentary on familiar Old Testament passage. In Genesis, Lot hardly comes across as a righteous man. It is quite possible that godliness was not a consistent mark in his daily conduct. In fact, scripture says he set his tents toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and then the next verse later he's in Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet in his standing before God he was a justified man, a righteous man. This is evidenced by the fact that Lot was distressed, tormented, oppressed is what that word means, by the enormity of iniquity all around him. The people in those twin cities were filthy in sexual debauchery, shameful, and lawless, unprincipled, and involved in lawless without any standard or law deeds. Besides being distressed, Lot was also tormented in his righteous soul. Seeing and hearing about all their vile ways day after day after day grieved his heart to the point of inner torture. It is noticeable, though, that though Lot is here designated as just and righteous, we do not find his name written in the 11th chapter of the Epistle of Hebrews, the great hall of fame, chapter of God's righteous saints. It never could have been said that by faith Lot dwelt in Sodom. Lot chose Sodom. Wooed by the city lights and the fertile plains, it was rather lack of faith that took him there. He had hoped thereby to better his worldly circumstances. Finally, when the judgment fell, he was saved out of all of it, but so as by fire. The great and destructive fire destroyed everything for which he had labored during all those years that he had lived in Sodom. This is reminiscent of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 3, 10-15. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it, that's Jesus But each one should be careful how he builds. Be careful how you build your life. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping the flames. The word rescue in verse 7 and 9 speak of God's willingness and ability to deliver his people from assorted difficulties and dangers even when they themselves, like Lot, do not overtly seek deliverance. Yet depending on the Lord's ability to rescue is no excuse for failing to enter the warfare against false teachers and false prophets or mingling or blending with the world. We're just causing ourselves much trouble and hardship, and in the end, as we've seen, will be burned up like smoke. The Lord knows how to deliver the ungodly out of trials and temptations, persecutions and tribulations of every kind, and to reserve the unjust until the day of judgment to be punished. That God can deliver the godly man from trial is a source of comfort to believers. Exemplified by Noah and his seven family members, and Lot and his daughters, on the other hand, God holds keeps under guard the unrighteous for the coming day of judgment, the great white throne judgment, and the lake of fire, written about in revelation twenty eleven through fifteen The wheat and tares now grow together, and one day he will make the separation. Jesus tells us in Matthew thirteen twenty-four 24-30. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came in and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servant asked him, do you want us to go up and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the warning of your scriptures. Help us to take these red flag warnings, Lord, and apply them to our lives. Help us to be like the Bereans, Lord, searching your word for the truth and standing for a minute. And we ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.